Hi! Hey, welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm Kay Albert Little, an evangelical convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is really born out of one very particular idea. The journey began for me when a Protestant pastor I was working for asked me the question, what's more important, the Bible or tradition? Well, I was stumped and wanted to find out what the answer was, so I did a deep dive into the history of Christianity the history of the Bible, how it was put together, the history of the early church, why some churches worshipped one way, other churches worshipped a different way entirely. What was the liturgy? And what was this Catholic church looming large in the background of, of all Christian history? Well, it was then, as I began to read from actual Catholic sources about this Catholic church, that I realized what I thought I knew about Catholicism was based in large part on misinformation and honestly, more often than not, on simple misunderstandings. Well, this podcast serves to fill in that same gap. The gap between what you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. Each week we have a real Catholic conversation with a real Catholic thinker from the heart of the Catholic Church. And this week is no different. I am joined once again by Jeffrey Pinion to talk about the prayers, the actions, and the meaning of the Mass Part 2. If you missed the first part of this conversation, it's episode 125, and you're going to want to listen to it. It's fantastic. Jeffrey is like a walking encyclopedia in terms of what's happening in the Mass, and it's phenomenal. The, the depth we, we plumb in, in this episode and in, in the previous one as well is just mind-boggling. And really, I promise you this will enhance your experience of the Mass, help you to take part in it in a brand new way. I can't underscore that enough. It's absolutely life-changing. Really, really. So if you haven't heard episode 125, check that out if if you want to. You don't have to. We're starting in this episode kind of in the middle of the Mass at the the Liturgy of the Eucharist and going from there. But you're going to want to, I think, go back and hear episode 125 as well because you're going to want to hear more from Jeffrey, I think. So it's fantastic. (laughs) That's all I can say. You're going to love it. This conversation and many others are brought to you by our patrons at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. A $5 or more a month support gets you access to behind-the-scenes stuff, uh, early access to episodes, and enter automatically into draws for free books every single month. Any support at any level is really appreciated and helps this show to keep going and keep growing. A one-time donation can be done at paypal.me slash cordialcatholic as well. Thanks, guys. Now, without any further ado, my fantastic conversation on the prayers, the actions, and the meaning of the Mass, part two with Jeffrey Pinion. You are going to absolutely love this, I guarantee. Please listen and enjoy. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. Thank you for watching. Just a reminder, if you're listening on on podcasts, we're also on YouTube at youtube.com slash thecordialcatholic to watch what you're hearing here. And if you're watching us on YouTube, we're actually on podcasts also everywhere you find fine podcasts at The Cordial Catholic. This is going to be a fantastic discussion. I am joined by Jeffrey Pinion. He is a software developer by trade and a lifelong Catholic who has combined his technological skills and love for the church to develop tools that help others and himself work with scripture, the catechism, and the writings of the church fathers. 
He has written the fantastic book, Praying the Mass, a two-volume series on the Mass to coincide with the new English translation. And we are going to continue talking about that this week. Jeffrey, I'm so thrilled to have you here. Thank you, and welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me back. So, if listeners, if this is your first part of this, this is a, this is a continuation of a conversation that we had a couple of weeks ago. So, I want to let you know that there is kind of a part one of this uh, in the archives, episode uh, 125. You can find that. But if you missed that, this is, that's fine. You can jump right in here because you'll love this too. But I think you're going to want to go back and, and watch, listen to that one as well because once you get a taste of what Jeffrey has to share with us, you're going to want to hear more of his stuff. So definitely going to want to at least go back and hear episode 125 when you get the chance, because this is fantastic stuff. Just give us a quick little intro, Jeffrey. We last we were talking about the Mass. We kind of left off, left the listeners hanging midway through the Mass. Where are we going today? Because it's going to be a thrilling ride. <laughs> so where, where are we at? Uh, so we ended uh, the last episode uh, with the prayer of the faithful. And that pretty much ends the liturgy of the word. And so it seemed like a, a good place to stop one episode. And we're going to pick up with the liturgy of the Eucharist this time. But I do want to point out that um, one major part of the liturgy of the word that I didn't talk about with you is the creed. Um, I will say, however, um, that there is an entire chapter of my first volume, The Prayers of the People, chapter seven is entirely devoted to both the Nicene and the Apostles' creeds. And most catechisms are, at least part of the catechism, is centered around the creed. Uh, the modern Catholic catechism of the Catholic Church uses the Apostles' creed, um, partly because I couldn't find a really thorough catechism on the Nicene creed. That's why I felt like I had to devote an entire chapter to it, because expressions like God from God, light from light, true God from true God. I hadn't really ever learned why we say light from light. What does that mean? And it was by going back into the church fathers uh, that I was able to find some explanation for what that expression means and why it's meaningful in the creed. Um, but there's also uh, a very short document that's kind of like an embellishment of the Nicene Creed that Pope Paul VI put out uh, in, I think, 1968 or 1969, called the Credo of the People of God. And it's basically the Pope giving um, glosses on the Nicene Creed. Uh, so I think that's something your listeners and your, your viewers may be interested in checking out. Uh, Paul VI, the Credo of the People of God. Um, in our previous episode, I had been introducing the concept of looking at parts of the Mass as being representations of the last week of Jesus's earthly life up to his passion and then continuing on to Pentecost. And so in the liturgy of the word, we covered things like Jesus's entrance into Jerusalem being the entrance procession, um, the penitential rite being the cleansing of the temple followed by the Gloria, uh, children singing Hosanna to him. And I didn't really continue, uh, making that analogy. Uh, so I just want to catch up to where we are now. Uh, the liturgy of the word itself, like the readings and the homily, um, you can see that as the time that Jesus spent the next few days teaching in the temple area, because we're hearing scripture, and then hopefully we're having it. Um, 
preached and explained to us in the homily. Um, and then that time that the disciples remained with Jesus while everybody else was starting to plot against him, that's the creed, this, that expression of faith and the prayer of the faithful. And that brings us then to Holy Thursday, which is where the liturgy of the Eucharist begins. We're going to see the Last Supper being prepared in the offertory. We're going to relive the Last Supper and the Passion in the Eucharistic prayer itself. We're going to see the, re the resurrection represented to us. And it's very easy to miss because there's a lot going on. But I'm definitely going to talk about what part in the Mass I think really uh, maps onto the moment of the resurrection. We're going to have an Emmaus moment. We're going to have communion. And then I think the my favorite part is the stay in the city. Jesus says to his apostles before he leaves, he says, stay in the city. And I see that as stick around after communion. Don't, don't leave right away. <laughs> stay here. Wait in the city. Um, and we know that the apostles, even after the ascension, they were always in the temple area rejoicing and praising God. So I think that's that's kind of like stick around, don't leave just yet. And then the big question at the end will be, well, when does Pentecost happen? If we've relived this entire passion and resurrection narrative, when is Pentecost in the Mass? Um, but that's at, that's at the end. So let's go back to now to the beginning of the Liturgy of the Eucharist. Um, the... The words of the Roman canon, the first Eucharistic prayer in the Roman rite, um, they also kind of give us a way to look at the liturgy of the Eucharist as a whole. Uh, the priest would say, he took bread in his holy and venerable hands and with his eyes raised to heaven to you, O God, his almighty Father, giving you thanks. He said the blessing, broke the bread, and gave it to his disciples. And in that part of the Eucharistic prayer, we see the offertory. Jesus taking bread. We see the preface, giving thanks to the Father. We see the consecration when Jesus says the blessing over the bread. The fraction rite is the breaking of the bread that Jesus does. And then, of course, communion is when he distributes that blessed, consecrated, broken bread to his disciples. And so those five movement, movements, the offertory, the preface, the consecration, the fraction, and the communion, those are kind of uh, a blueprint or a map that we can use as we look through how to interpret the rites in a mystagogical way, looking at their origins in scripture, the meanings of the symbols, and how then we can relate them to human Christian life. And so let's start with the offertory, because that's how the liturgy of the Eucharist begins. Um, just like we can break the liturgy of the Eucharist down into a bunch of different parts, we can do the same thing with the offertory. Um, the first thing that happens is the altar is prepared, and then we have offerings or gifts being presented to the priest, and then those offerings themselves are prepared. And there's a bit of terminology here. We start with the preparation of gifts, and we end with a prayer over offerings. And so what begin as gifts, which are really God's gifts to us, end up being offerings, things that we will be offering back to God. And that, that concept of God gives us something and we give it back, that concept of exchange is found all throughout the Mass. And it was something that, for example, St. Augustine 
um, really honed in on. He called it a wonderful exchange. And he saw all sorts of wonderful exchanges between God and man. Um, and the most profound to him was that mankind gave God a body of flesh in which he, God, could actually suffer death. And God, in return, gave mankind eternal life. Um, and we're going to see this concept mentioned in one of the prayers of the priest, a, a silent prayer of the priest, one that I was privy to as an altar server, um, and one that maybe people just don't know unless they're reading along in a missal. Um, but this, this exchange concept uh, comes up over and over again in the Mass, and I'll kind of give a, a recapitulation of that at the end of the episode, too. Um, so what's being offered or what's being presented in the offertory, the obvious things are, aside from like the collection, the obvious things are bread and wine. And the bread and the wine are the stuff of the sacrament of the Eucharist. Um, but the bread and the wine are far more meaningful when you think about their cultural context, when you think of their, their natural uh, the, the way we get bread and wine out of wheat and grapes. So, for example, um, Pope Benedict XVI, in a homily that he gave in 2010 during Holy Week, said that there are four elements in creation on which God has built the world of the sacraments. Water, bread, wine, and olive oil. And that water is the vital element everywhere. And so it kind of represents how all people are called to rebirth in baptism as Christians. But those other three elements, bread, wine, and olive oil, if you make a Venn diagram, that kind of hones in on the Mediterranean region. And so it speaks to the concrete historical environment in which Christianity emerged. Um, and so bread and wine and, and oil point to a particular culture and people and place in history and that's why Christians everywhere have cultivated wheat and grapes and not whatever happened to be the, the local staple food and staple uh, beverage or drink. Um, and so when we look at bread and wine, when we look at wheat and grapes, we start to see the way that they map onto facets of human life. Um, bread is a daily food. Uh, it's symbolic of the everyday and you know the everyday joys and the everyday toils. Wine is a symbol of feast and joy. Um, it's so you have the the everyday in bread, and you have the special occasion in wine. Uh, then how do we get bread and wine? God and here's another exchange. God gives us seeds, and we cultivate them, we collect them, we work them, and we form them into bread and wine. We're good stewards of the talents that we've received from God, like in Matthew 25, that parable of the, the good steward who invests the talents that God gives him. And even the manner in which wheat becomes bread and grapes become wine is a sign of how we are formed into one body of Christ, using the language from Paul that many, many grains are gathered into one loaf and many grapes are crushed into one cup. And even that grinding of grain and the crushing of grape is a sign of our death in baptism in order to be incorporated into Christ. So bread and wine are not just arbitrary 
arbitrary ingredients of a sacrament. Um, you can't just have Doritos and Coke. Um, there really is symbolic human importance in these elements of red and wine. Um, and it's on the wine that I want to focus because there's this silent prayer of the priest that I think second only to the consecration itself really sums up the beauty and the mystery of the mass. And so if you're ever at mass, maybe on a weekday mass, or if it's a Sunday mass, you know, you're probably singing a hymn at this point, but pay attention to what the priest is doing up at the altar. And you'll see that um, probably an altar server uh, gives him a cruet with wine in it, and he pours the wine into a chalice. And then the altar server will hand him uh, a cruet with water in it. And the priest will put just a tiny drop or two of water in the chalice with the wine. And as he does this, the priest prays a prayer. And he says, by the mystery of this water and wine, may we come to share in the divinity of Christ, who humbled himself to share in our humanity. And this pouring of water into wine and the prayer that accompanies it, to me, is a synthesis of the entire Mass, of the entire Catholic faith, and it's it's a summation of salvation history. Um, it's a deeply scriptural prayer. This humbling to share in our humanity comes from Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, that beautiful hymn of Paul about how Christ humbled himself, even to the point of death. Um, and that language that we might come to share in the divinity of Christ, at first blush, that might sound a little, maybe a little Gnostic, or I don't know, maybe just a little foreign, but it comes from 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. Um, that we are called to share in the divinity of Christ. Um, God offers us to share in his life. Um, and so this, this act of pouring water into wine has several, several symbolic meanings, and I'm only going to focus on a few. Um, and of course, back in Jesus' day, uh, wine was much more potent and thick, and you would generally cut wine with water. Um, it's even recommended in 2 Maccabees chapter 15, verse 39. Um, it's just like water is not good for you on its own and wine isn't good for you on its own. You should mix the two. And St. Paul says something else. He says, no longer sh should you have just water, but you should have a little wine too. But so you have a, a practice that's, it comes from Jesus's day and it's acquired a symbolic meaning. Um, St. Clement of Alexandria said that the blood of the grape, speaking of wine, and he says the blood of the grape, that is the word, desired to be mixed with water. And that water represents humanity, um, and it represents, um, well, I, I don't want to get ahead of myself. <laughs> um, so some of, the, some of the symbolic meanings then of, of mixing the water and the wine. Um, the first image that might come to mind is Jesus being crucified, and he's died, and his his side is pierced by a lance, and out come blood and water, signs that he had really given everything. Um, that event in itself is kind of prefigured in the Old Testament when Moses strikes a rock in the desert and water flows forth. Uh, and St. Paul says that that rock allegorically represents Christ. And later Christians interpreted the rod of Moses that he held as a sign of the cross. 
and I talked about that in the previous episode, how him holding the uh, holding the staff above his head um, was a sign of the crucifixion. And in that act on the cross of having his side pierced and blood and water coming out, other church fathers saw it as being like the birth of the church, that Christ, the new Adam, is in the sleep of death and out of his side, where Eve came out of Adam, out of the new Adam's side, comes the church in this sign of water and, and blood. Um, water and blood also represent the sacraments of baptism and Eucharist, which are the beginning and culmination of all the sacraments. Um, so that's the first kind of symbolism, the piercing of Christ's heart and what the blood and water mean there. Then we also have that the blood represents divinity and the water represents humanity. And so you have the divinity of Christ absorbing the humanity that he received in the womb of Mary. And it's hidden from sight in the chalice. We don't see this happening, just like the incarnation happened in a hidden manner. Um, and once the wine and the water have mingled in the chalice, you can't separate them anymore. And so too, Christ's divinity and his humanity, while they are distinct, he has two natures, but they are eternally joined in the incarnation. And so this you have this act of divine condescension of God stooping down to receive lowly human nature. Um, it's really like, if you could say, it's the only thing God lacked. And it's the only thing that we could give hat only thing that we could give God that he didn't have was this body of mortal flesh to die in. Um, and so this is why uh, St. Paul in Philippians chapter 2 can say Christ humbled himself, uh, Christ was found in human form and he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And so that's where that the words of the prayer, Christ who humbled himself to share in our humanity. And just then, like the water and the wine represents Christ's divinity and humanity coming together. Then you also have its humanity's union with Christ. Um, may we come to share in the divinity of Christ. Second Peter chapter one, he just starts out his letter with this, that God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted us, granted to us his precious and very great promises that through these you may escape from the corruption that is in this world because of passion and become partakers of the divine nature. Um, this concept that God actually wants us to share in his glory and wants us to share in his nature kind of stands against a lot of the occasional, um, maybe I guess Calvinist language I hear that God doesn't share his glory with anyone. No, St. Peter is very clear. God wants to share his glory, his excellence, and even his divine life with us. Um, and then I guess the last, the last little bit about this that really stands out to me is we know that water is getting mixed in with wine. Well, there's water in the bread too. Like you can't make bread without adding water to that flour. And so you have water that's imperceptibly in the wine. You, you can't see the water in the wine. And you have the water that is imperceptibly in the bread. And so this, this shows the this unlikely similarity between these two elements. Um, and it 
reinforces to us that if we are partaking in Christ, if we are participating in Christ, then we should be offering ourselves with him. We should be uniting ourselves with Christ. And so we can see the bread and the wine as symbols of our lives, our toil, our joys, our struggles, everything that is within us, we can identify in the bread and wine. And so when we're offering those to God, we can be offering ourselves as well. Um, so that's a lot to unpack. Uh, and we're only a couple minutes into the offertory. <laughs> that's fantastic. It's fantastic. And you said too that there's more you could go into. And of course there there is, I'm sure. That's a, a snippet of what you could say of those things. That that's incredible. So where do we go where do we go next in, in this part of the liturgy? On particularly solemn occasions, after the uh, after the bread and wine have been prepared on the altar, they might be blessed with incense. And the bread and the wine aren't the only things that get ins- uh, that get uh, blessed with incense. The priest himself will also be blessed, but not just the priest. Then the the deacon or the altar server, whoever it is who's who's waving the thurible, will come around to the front of the altar, and the congregation will stand up, and the congregation will also be blessed with incense, and incense in the scriptures is a sign of our prayers and our sacrifices rising up in the sight of God as a pleasing aroma. Um, St. Paul says in Ephesians 5 that um, we are a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Um, And so it's not just the bread and wine that are being offered to God. It really is us too. We are exercising a priesthood in presenting ourselves as living sacrifices. And that moment when we're blessed with incense, should remind us there that we're not we're not simply spectators. We're not there just watching what the priest is doing. We have a role to play. We have something to unite to the sacrifice. Um, and the fire that causes the incense to smoke and, and to release this aroma is evocative of the Holy Spirit. Um, and of course, the cloud of smoke that fills the church Uh, is kind of evocative of that glory cloud of the Holy Spirit that hovered over the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament. Um, Even the verb that the Old Testament uses for that cloud over the Ark, uh, the overshadowing word, uh, in Luke's uh, Luke's Gospel, he uses that same word in Greek, episkiatsos, to refer to the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary, which is just another way that Luke is is identifying Mary as, as a, a new ark. Um, so then this brings us to the close of the offertory. Um, the priest will say, pray brethren that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God, the almighty father. And we respond by saying, may the Lord accept the sacrifice at your hands for the praise and glory of his name for our good and the good of all his holy church. And these these three reasons that we ask that God accept the sacrifice, the praise and glory of his name, our good, and the good of all his church, um, they remind us why we are offering the Eucharist. First of all, it's a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving to God. And also, and you find this a lot throughout the Old Testament, the concept that God's name would be praised among the other nations 
when those other nations saw how faithful Israel was to God and saw the the blessings that God was pouring out on the Israelites. And you see the reverse of that too. When Israel breaks their covenant with God and God has to punish them, oftentimes a prophet will speak up saying like, Lord, don't let this punishment go on for so long because otherwise the other nations will see how you treat us, your people. Like, don't you want more glory to be given to your name? So we offer the Eucharist or we, we pray that the Eucharist be accepted for the praise and glory of, God, of God's name. We do it for our good that we, like the Eucharist is a salutary offering. It brings us salvation. It, the act of communion brings us into God's life but also then for the good of all his holy church. And this means not just the people who aren't at mass right now. Um, it also reminds us to, to pray and offer sacrifices for the souls in purgatory. Um, but also to remember that even our offering of the Eucharist on earth brings more glory to the saints who are in heaven already. That the, the Eucharist is an overabundance of graces and blessings um, and I think before we move on from here, I, I want to mention this, this concept of church. Um, there's a lot of ways you can define church, like the body of Christ is, is Paul's language for it. Um, St. Peter in his first epistle, um, gives sort of a, a, an encoded definition of what the church is because the Greek word for church is ecclesia. Um, and it comes from a prefix ek, which means out, and a root word uh, kaleo, which means to call. And so the church is the called out, those who are called out. And if you think about that expression, those who are called out, who's doing the calling? Who is being called? What are they being called out of? What are they being called into? And what purpose were they called for? And St. Peter in one verse, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, that you may declare the wonderful deeds of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I don't know if St. Peter knew he was doing it. Um, theologians sometimes talk of a, 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 a fuller sense of scripture that the scripture writer didn't even know what he was getting at. And I'm not going to be so arrogant as to say I may have cracked the code here, but <laughs> Peter just answered those five questions. God calls us, this chosen race, this royal priesthood, this holy nation out of darkness into God's own marvelous light so that we may declare his wonderful deeds. And I think that's a beautiful description and picture of the church. And it gives us an idea of what our mission is on earth. And so with that, the offertory really ends and we move into the Eucharistic prayer proper. Um, I've been talking for forever now. So how, how, how is that? Did you know that there was so much waiting for you in the offertory? I mean, it's it, yeah. Cause one of the things with, uh, this is amazing by the way. And I, I am, I'm I'm gobsmacked continuously throughout our conversations, our last one and this one because you have so much to unpack here and and who really you could you could say the mass for for a long time and I feel like still come up with new things here listening hearing you it's 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 amazing this what's in there and I think the cool thing with this part especially is because this is 
contained a lot in those silent prayers of the priest, for one thing, that we wouldn't hear normally. But even in those that seemingly small silent prayer and those small actions, the, the mixing of the water and the wine, in, in all of that, there is so much meaning. I think it's amazing that all those things fit together so well. I think, too, of this idea of of this sacrifice. And I think, again, it was it was Dr. Dennis McNamara, who we've mentioned before in our conversations, who really brought it home for me, the idea of, of we are bringing a sacrifice to Mass as part of this, this priesthood that we're a part of, of all believers, right? We're supposed to be bringing some kind of sacrifice of our own when we come to Mass to, to bring with, to the altar, in a sense, right? And so here's, I think, that time when we're really meant to call to mind that that idea that what we're, 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 we are part of this, we're not the priest at the altar doing these things or the deacon assisting or the altar server assisting, but we are meant to be part of this and participating in the Mass. And here's just another reminder throughout the liturgy, right, of, of us taking part in the Mass, being, being an active participant in what's happening here, right? Absolutely. Like, one thing when... When a Protestant will ask, like, what should I know before I go to Mass? Um, one of the things I'll say is there's going to be a lot of symbolism. There's going to be so much going on. Don't expect you're going to be able to grasp it all on the first time you, you go. Don't feel bad if you if you miss something. Um, go many times and start to pick up on little things. Go often enough that you can say, all right, one mass, I'm just going to look at all the stained glass around me because it's there for a reason. You know, it's telling salvation history stories. It's telling stories of saints. Um, but yeah, like even Catholics who go to mass daily, like there's still more there for them to unpack. And it's not like I was able to distill everything into my books. Like I, after I wrote my books, I bought all the other books that were coming out about the mass because I wanted to see like, what did I miss? Like what other source didn't I, didn't I read? And uh, there's just, there's so, there's so much richness in there um, that, I mean, tonight we're only going to scratch the surface. There's a couple places we're going to get really deep, but we're still only scratching the surface. Um, and you, you reminded me, you said that we are there offering a sacrifice too. Um, and we know that the bread and the wine by the consecration are going to be transubstantiated into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. If we can see in the bread and wine our own selves being offered, then we're getting a hint of our future of being made made like Christ ourselves, that the bread and the wine they are changing in substance into Jesus Christ. Um, we too are being configured to Christ. I think to, I think that's the language Paul uses. We're being configured to Christ um, more and more from glory into glory. We're, we're being made more like Christ. And if we can identify ourselves with the bread and the wine, if that bread and wine doesn't stay some external sacrifice, that some family brought up this week and another family is going to bring up next week. And it's just in the priest's hands. And, you know, if we can actually identify ourselves with that bread and wine, then I think what happens to the bread and wine um, 
can be more meaningful to us. <laughs> um, and that's really like, that's, that's what mystagogy is all about is drawing out the meaning of the rights. Um, and it's something I never tire of. Um, I have like my bookcase here over one of my shoulders. Um, I have a lot of books there on the liturgy and I haven't read all of them and I haven't read all of all of them. And I know that if I want to, if I want to be surprised by the liturgy, all I need to do is open one of those books and read about, and I'll find something that I missed last time, or I'll, or I'll read something I've read before and I'll, I'll read it in a new way and I'll understand it in a new way. And I will be able to appreciate that part of mass all the more the next time. Yeah. I want to say two things here. And the first is that idea of the bread and the wine kind of us identifying with that. That is a remarkable observation. I really, that that is, if we can just take that from this entire interview and our last one too, and just focus on that when we go to mass and see ourselves in the bread and the wine, that alone can, I think, transform somebody's spiritual life as they reflect on that at mass. So, so kudos for that brilliant observation. And the second I can't, thing, I can't lay credit to it. Uh, it's in my bibliography somewhere. Yeah, somewhere, somewhere. Okay, okay. The second thing is, you're absolutely right. I mean, we talk about the the rich um, tradition of Catholic prayer, the rich tradition of Catholic d- devotions and different things that Catholics practice in the long history of, of Catholicism. But, I mean, you could just set all that aside and just go to Mass every Sunday or go to daily Mass and spend your life as a Catholic just plumbing the depths of just of just the mass, right? And come away with with so much because there's so much in there. Never mind all the other beautiful Catholic traditions, right? You could just just do the mass, like you're saying, a whole bookshelf. And it it, it it's amazing. It's amazing. It, it, it is. And I mean, there's the parts of the mass that don't change day to day, week to week. Um, and then there are the parts that do change, like the individual proper prayers that are said for each celebration of the mass we can kind of go into autopilot when we hear them being said because they're being addressed to God. And, you know, but if you sit down and and look at them or you read them and you pay attention to them, you'll see this um, like this pattern of prayer. Um, They address God, they invoke him and they, they often will like recollect something that God has done in the past. And then they'll frame the petition and the purpose of the petition related to that recollection. Um, so, for example, um, that prayer that the priest says when he pours the water into the wine, it comes from a 7th century prayer. Um, a 7th century prayer that was said uh, on Christmas Day. And the prayer, I don't have it written in front of me, but the prayer is something like, O God, who wondrously created man, but even more wondrously redeemed him, may we come to share in the divinity of Christ who humbled himself to share in our humanity. And so it addresses God as the creator of mankind, and then realize, and then it mentions how much more glorious redemption is than creation itself, and then presents that petition of us coming to share in Christ's divinity because he shared our humanity. Um, So yeah, I'm sure there are books dedicated to the proper prayers of the mass. Um, There's so many of them. It would probably be a series of books, but yeah, if you ever like you ever get just like, you know, the daily missile or whatever, um, 
maybe like before you go to mass, read those proper prayers because you might, you might just be an autopilot when you hear the priest saying them. But if you read them ahead of time, you might be able to, to internalize them. And then when you get to that part of mass and the priest says, let us pray, he doesn't say, let me pray. He says, let us pray. You can be like, oh yeah, I read this prayer ahead of time and I know what it's saying and I'm going to unite myself to it somehow. Um, and so that's a pretty good segue into the Eucharistic prayer, which is the high point of the mass, the great, the greatest prayer within this great prayer of the mass. And people might not realize it, but the Eucharistic prayer actually begins with the preface. The Eucharistic prayer begins with our dialogue with the priest. The Eucharistic prayer is not simply what the priest is, is praying. We have a part in it too. And it includes the holy, holy, holy that we sing. It includes our acclamation to the mystery of faith. And most, well, not most importantly, but like it includes our amen. It includes our signature to the end of that prayer. Um, so we have a part in the Eucharistic prayer too. Uh, but let's start then. The preface to the Eucharistic prayer has that dialogue. The priest says, the Lord be with you. We respond in with your spirit. And here, the priest, just like at the beginning of Mass, the priest is praying that the Lord's presence be here with us on earth. And then the priest says, lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. And now we're saying, let us be in God's presence. So we've asked God to be present here with us. And now we're saying, let us make ourselves present in heaven with God. And then the priest says, let us give thanks to the Lord our God. And we say it is right and just. So there's, in this little three-way or, or three-part dialogue, um, the Lord is invoked three times. The Lord be with you. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. So we've invoked the Lord three times, very Trinitarian. We're also using, um, we start with the Lord be with you and with your spirit. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. And then the priest says, let us give thanks. He doesn't say, let me give thanks, just like he says, let us pray. He says, let us give thanks. And here is where the Mass really becomes a participation in the heavenly worship, the heavenly liturgy that is going on constantly before the throne of God in heaven. And I know you've had Scott Hahn on the show. Um, I'm sure he's not the only one who's mentioned it, but this, this foretaste of the heavenly liturgy that we have here in Mass is one of the most remarkable things about Catholic liturgy um, and Orthodox liturgy as well. Um, and as Scott Hahn probably mentioned, the book of Revelation plays very heavily into it. Um, at the end of chapter three of the book of Revelation, Jesus is finishing up his last letter. I think it's to the church in Laodicea, perhaps. And he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. That's how chapter three ends. And then chapter four, John says, after this, I looked and behold in heaven, an open door. Jesus has just finished mentioning, if you open the door to me, I will come in to you. You will eat with me. I will eat with you. And then John sees in heaven an open door. And shortly after he sees the open door, he hears someone say, come up here. Lift up your hearts. Come up through this door into heaven. And 
So this is where we have this blending between earthly time and heavenly eternity, um, the earthly physical reality and the heavenly spiritual reality. And in the midst of all of this, uh, we then get to participate in part of the heavenly liturgy, literally. Um, John sees the open door. He's told, come up here. He sees all sorts of wonderful things. And then he hears angels singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And we get to sing those words. And this is the second time in Mass that we have sung the words of angels. In the Gloria, we sang the words that the angels used temporally on earth at the birth of Christ. And in the Sanctus, in the Holy, 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 we get to use the words that the angels use eternally in heaven. And so again, there's this wonderful dichotomy on earth as it is in heaven, in time and for eternity. And with those words of the angels, we join the words of men, the words that were sung in, in the presence of Jesus on that first Palm Sunday when he enters Jerusalem, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And so these, these words that we're singing, first of all, come straight out of Scripture, and they really situate us within the passion of Christ, but also in heaven. And it shouldn't surprise us that Christ's passion in some way is continued in heaven, because what does John see in heaven? John sees a lamb standing as though it were slain. Now, I'm not a farmer, but I'm pretty sure that when you slay a lamb, it falls over. When a lamb is dead, it's not going to stand there anymore. But John says, I saw a lamb standing as though it were slain. And church father commentary is, is one interpretation of that is John sees Jesus still bearing the sign of the crucifixion. He still has the wounds on his body. Um, and so he describes it as a lamb standing but slain. Um, and so when we're, when we're singing holy, 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 we're singing these words of the angels in the presence of the lamb. And we join to it those, those earthly words. We say Hosanna. We might not know what Hosanna means. Hosanna is a Hebrew word uh, with the same, essentially the same root as Yeshua. Um, the, uh, Hosea means savior. And so this cry of Hosanna is save us or hasten to save us. It's kind of like an imperative. Jesus, please save us. And when we say blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the people in Jerusalem didn't realize it at the time, but Jesus was coming in his own name. Jesus is the Lord. He's coming in his own name. He has that authority that resides in himself. And when this was sung on the first Palm Sunday, uh, the Pharisees were not very happy about it. They asked Jesus to quiet the crowd. And Jesus said, uh, Luke chapter 19, verse 40, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And I know you've quoted uh, G.K. Chesterton on your show a number of times. Um, and G.K. Chesterton wrote that when Jesus said those words, he was kind of prophesying church architecture several centuries later, how Gothic church architecture tends to have um, stone faces, whether it's the gargoyles or whether it's the faces of saints and, and other holy people. 
but their mouths aren't shut. Their mouths are usually open in exaltation. Um, and so I like that as, as kind of Jesus making this, this hidden prophecy about even church architecture. Um, so we've sung the holy, holy, holy. We've used the words of angels. We've situated ourselves in heaven. Our hearts are in heaven. And early in the Eucharistic prayer, we get to a part called the epiclesis, which means the calling down upon. Um, and there are usually some audio visual cues. Sometimes there will be bells rung, but you'll definitely see the priest extend his hands over the bread and wine and make the sign of the cross over them. And what he's asking for is that the Holy Spirit work to make the bread and the wine, the body and blood of Christ. Um, so our hearts are in heaven. We're asking that our offering be made heavenly too. And we get to the institution narrative, the consecration. Um, at the consecration, we kind of see a sign of the death of Christ because the bread and the wine are consecrated individually. And so you have this moment where the sign of Christ's body and the sign of Christ's blood are separated. And that is a representation of his true death on the cross. Now, what's interesting is in our Eucharistic prayers, the words that Jesus uses are in the present tense. So he says, this is my body that will be given up for you. This is the chalice of my blood, which will be poured out. But if you look in the New Testament, in your Bibles, um, your Bible is probably using the present tense because the Greek in the Bible there is using the present tense. At the Last Supper, Jesus said, this is my body, which is given. This is my blood, which is poured out. And so I think what Jesus was telling the apostles to do in the future, when he said, do this in memory of me, was not simply to remember this thing that Jesus did fondly, but Jesus was making present for them the sacrifice that he would be offering on the cross tomorrow. He was making present the sacrifice in the same way that now in Catholic churches that sacrifice is made present. The real difference here is that Jesus pre-presented the sacrifice before he had actually carried it out on the cross, whereas in the Mass we re-present. Um, so Jesus anticipated his own sacrifice at the Last Supper, and we relive, we recreate, we represent that sacrifice um, from the cross. Now, sometimes people see the elevation of the bread and the wine, of the, of the consecrated bread and the consecrated wine, and they think that that moment when the priest is lifting them up there right after the consecration is when they're being offered to God. But really, that moment is just, it's a showing, it's an elevation. Um, and it kind of goes back to uh, several centuries ago when the priest facing the same direction as the people, like he's holding the Eucharistic bread and they can't see it. And so he holds it above his head so that the people can see it over him. But that's, that moment is not him offering the Eucharist to God. That comes next in the Eucharistic prayer. In the offertory, we've presented bread and wine to God. And at the consecration, God returns the bread and wine to us as the Eucharist. And the very next thing the priest does is offer the Eucharist right back to God. And uh, something I didn't include in my books because it was only brought to my attention a week or so ago when I was talking about being on your show. Somebody said, 
So it's pretty much like all we have to offer God is what Cain offered, fruits of the earth. And God turns that offering of Cain into the offering of Abel. Abel who offered the sacrifice of, of a living animal. And uh, if you hear Eucharistic Prayer 1, the Roman canon, the sacrifice of Abel is named, uh, it, it's it's mentioned after the consecration um, as sort of like comparing the Eucharist to the sacrifice of your servant Abel, the bread and wine offered by your priest Melchizedek, and so on. Um, so yeah, if you listen to the words of the Eucharistic prayer, after the consecration, the priest will say something like, we offer to you this pure victim, this holy victim, the holy bread of eternal life, and the chalice of everlasting salvation. So God gives us back the Eucharist, and the first thing we do is give it right back to him. Um, and so this is another one of those exchanges that happens in Mass that we might not be aware of. We might think we give God bread and wine, he gives us the Eucharist, and we receive it in communion. You skipped a big step. You skipped the big step of now that God has offered us the Eucharist, we offer it right back to him immediately um, because it is the offering of the Eucharist, not simply the making present of the Eucharist, but the offering of the Eucharist that really unites our sacrifice on earth to Christ's eternal sacrifice in heaven. And um, this concept of Christ's sacrifice being represented or, or being offered again is another thing that a lot of Protestants find as a sticking point. Um, and I think the letter to the Hebrews does a really good job of explaining that if a priest no longer has an offering to make, his priesthood is expired. Um, but Jesus lives eternally as a priest in heaven. And so if he's eternally a priest in heaven, he must always have something to offer. So if Jesus is eternally presenting his sacrifice to the Father, and the Mass is a participation in that heavenly worship, then it stands to reason that we aren't we, we aren't making a new sacrifice. We aren't re-crucifying Christ. We are we are opening the door to heaven and we're stepping into the moment when Christ eternally is offering himself to the Father. Um, and so that's where Hebrews 7 and Hebrews 8, I think, really help establish the Catholic position that Jesus holds his priesthood permanently and that if he's a priest, he has something to offer. And he, he never stops offering because he holds that priesthood forever. And that, that brings us to the end of the Eucharistic prayers, as far as we're concerned for tonight. I think what you said there, that last bit is so true, the misunderstanding there. And I hope this episode, I think that it will, goes a long way towards helping uh, non-Catholic Christians to understand what's happening in the Mass. For, I think this would do an enormous job of that, these two episodes here. But it, like the language of sacrifice sometimes just sets those alarm bells off, right? Because if I was, if I were a back in my my non-Catholic Christian days, were to walk into a mass and and see a priest dressed in this very very to me foreign kind of garb and and this language of sacrifice, it it, it sounds sometimes like they're that they're sacrificing something that they have they've accomplished or they've done by some kind of power or something, right? But like you said here. We're, we're we've brought almost nothing to this table, right? And Christ takes that, and then we offer it back right back to Him. Like I mean, it's and it's another way that the, the sacraments work. You know, by God meeting us in grace to give us the grace through the sacraments, we're hardly doing anything apart from showing up there to receive the sacraments. 
the the sacrifice isn't this isn't this Old Testament like we brought this lamb here to be slain and we're we've worked for years to afford this lamb and, and brought this lamb and you know all this stuff. Really, it's 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 us being part of that Christ giving Himself to the Father over and over again and and making that present. Like it's we're we're not really doing a whole lot to to make. I mean, that's one way I can kind of say it, right? I mean, yeah, that. I mean, the bread and wine that we offer, those are gifts from God. Yeah. What, what, what our, our genuine contribution to the Eucharist is ourselves, um, the good and the bad of us. Um, we offer the good to glorify God, and we offer the bad to have it be transformed yeah. and to have ourselves be made more like Christ. Um, and yeah, that language of sacrifice, I think another helpful lens to look at it through is sacrifices have two components the death of the victim and the offering of the victim christ's death happened once and for all but the offering is happening eternally in heaven and so in the mass we aren't crucifying christ again we're not killing him again we are making visible the fact that he died so that what we offer has a a physical appearance to what he offered. And then we are, we're stepping into the never ending stream of Jesus offering himself to the father. Um, so yeah, like, I don't think I personally ever really had a problem accepting the, the church teaching on the Eucharist, but reading these particular ways of explaining it, um, First of all, they you know they help bolster my faith, but also they give me ways that I can maybe explain it to a non-Catholic. And I'm not saying I'll convert them on the spot when they hear it, but hopefully they don't have the same like knee-jerk negative reaction or response to the Eucharist being a true sacrifice, Christ's unbloody sacrifice represented on the altar. Language like that can be a hindrance. Language like this can help them understand uh, understand the church's teaching. Yeah, and, and that linking between the book of Revelation and what's happening in Mass is so fundamental to me. I think that helped me understand a, a whole lot of what's going on there because that is so, so foreign to, I think, every single Protestant denomination. Uh, Anglicans would have a, a piece of that in certain high Anglican traditions. But apart from that, I would not I would never have imagined in a million years, in any church I was in as a non-Catholic Christian, that what I'm doing is some way connected to worship in heaven and the book of Revelation. That is just so foreign. But, but putting that lens on what's happening in the Mass explains so much of it, right? That we're joining that kind of worship that you can clearly see is biblical. I had Father Lawrence Liu episode uh, one nineteen of this show. He he was a he was an um, he was like an evangelical Christian. He's now a Dominican friar, but he talked about how he was he read his Bible very well, knew it very well, went to mass, and almost immediately saw, hey, this this is what I read in Revelation was happening here, right? <laughs> it's biblical, but mm-hmm. that's such a foreign lens to put on. Uh, put on the mass on a worship service. Like no Protestant is going to worship service on a Sunday morning thinking that they're worshiping as they do in heaven via the book of Revelation, right? But that's a fantastic, that's what we're, what we're doing as Catholics in large part. And that's the lens I think that really helps us understand what's happening there, right? And so much of that. Yeah. 
I mean, for me, I think it was Scott Hahn's book, The Lamb's Supper. I think yeah. that was the first one I read that really showed you how clearly imagery and revelation maps to the Catholic mass, but just how liturgical it is in general. Like, first of all, chapter one opens by John saying, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. So that establishes it as being the day that, you know, mass that the liturgy is celebrated. Um, the way he describes what Jesus is wearing, Jesus is wearing liturgical vestments. Um, and Jesus's skin is like bronze. And like, that's a callback to me of Moses on the mountain, how Moses's face became this like shiny bronze because he had been in the presence of God. Like, and the, the, the lampstands being like more or less menorahs, like just all of this liturgical language being used in the book of Revelation. And it really tends to get skipped over and people focus instead on angels pouring out bowls of destruction yeah. on the earth. And yeah. um, one of my favorite, um, one of my favorite pieces of church art is uh, a book. It, it, sometimes it's a book or sometimes it's, it's a scroll. Um, I think my current parish has it as a book. Um, the, the image is a book with seven tassels hanging from it and a lamb seated on top of it. And it's image from the book of Revelation, the, the, the scroll with seven seals, who is worthy to un, uh, to open the scroll, the, who is worthy to open the scrolls and read from the book, the lamb of God. Um, so like, I really love that image. And I just wonder like how many people realize what they're looking at. They're not just looking at a lamb sitting on a copy of the, the sacramentary or the Roman missal. Like that, that is a revelation image right there. Yeah. Um, I, I, I kind of wish that like I could get into leading tours of churches and explaining the religious art um, because like, like I said before, there's just so much going on at mass, both static on the walls and dynamic in the, the words and the actions like there, it takes a lifetime at least really to, to appreciate it all. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so the Eucharistic prayers ended. And we, as the priest will say, we dare now to call upon God as father. And again, I have to a throwback to Scott Hahn, who I, I went to a talk of his back in, I think, 2010 or 2011. And he gives a talk about how we really do dare to call God father. Um, particularly, he contrasts it with the image of God in Islam, which is God is a master and not a father. And yet in Christianity, we can call God father. Um, and we're bold to do so. Um, now, we've all heard the Our Father. We've prayed the Our Father hundreds, thousands of times in our life. And I'm not going to go through it line by line, but I am going to draw your attention to some things that you might just gloss over because it's a prayer you know by heart and you say it all the time. First of all, those the prayer starts by addressing God. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it's that, that ending part, on earth as it is in heaven, you could kind of attach it to all three of the things you just said. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name on earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now we know that in heaven, God's name is perfectly hallowed. 
His kingdom is perfectly realized in his saints and his angels who are already worshiping him in the new Jerusalem. And his will is perfectly accomplished in heaven. But we just said on earth as it is in heaven. Well, who's going to be hallowing God's name and bringing about his kingdom and accomplishing his will on earth? It's it's us. Even that opening of the Our Father lays a tremendous burden on our shoulders. Um, we've just said, may all these things that happen in heaven also happen on earth. And there's no earthly society, there's no utopia that can bring these things about. Um, there's no secular community that can compare to the heavenly kingdom. And there's no human power that can supplant the power of Jesus Christ, who is true God and true man. And so those first three petitions of the Our Father, we talk about God's glory, his kingdom, and his will. And when we participate in the mission of the church, which is the mission of Christ, we bring about those three things on earth as they are in heaven. And what we need in order to participate is what the next four petitions of the Our Father um, talk about. We call upon God then as our provider, our forgiver, our protector, and our deliverer, so that our needs can be met as we work toward the fulfillment of his mission. Um, so we ask for daily bread. We ask for that sustenance. Um, and the part I really want to focus in on is we we often speak of God as uh, rich in mercy, overflowing in mercy. But in the Our Father, we actually dare God to cap his mercy. We say, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. So we're almost saying to God, forgive me only to the extent that I'm willing to forgive my neighbor. And it calls to mind the parable of the unforgiving servant, the servant who has a, a very small debt and his master forgives it. And then that servant, no, no, that, that servant has a huge debt. Master forgives it. That servant goes, finds another servant who owes him a small amount and won't forgive him at all. Master finds out about it and kind of reneges on the whole forgiveness thing. So when we pray the Our Father, we're asking for God to be our provider, our sustainer, but we're also saying, but God, keep me accountable for how merciful how for how merciful I am. And if we keep that in mind, then we should be overflowing in mercy because we want God to be so merciful to us. And Jesus says the same thing a number of times in his gospel, in the gospel. Uh, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Um, when you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you. Um, so keep that in mind when you pray those words. They're, they're not empty words. You might not realize what you're saying, but you are making a contract with God there. Forgive me to the extent that I forgive others. Um, at the end of the Our Father, there's another little prayer about deliver us. Then we enter the rite of peace. Uh, then we start singing the Lamb of God. And while we're singing the Lamb of God, a bunch of stuff is happening that, again, if we are if we're devoting too much of our attention to the Lamb of God, which, I mean, it's not a bad thing, but if we're so focused on the singing part of the Mass, we might not realize what the priest is doing. And the priest is doing some astonishing things now. Um, while we are singing, he is breaking the host into pieces. Um, and part of this is practical. Um, 
I know oftentimes a large host is used, and so he breaks it into a bunch of pieces so that he can distribute it as communion. Um, but also the fraction of the host is sort of a another representation of that real, uh, the real death of Christ. And the commentators say, the Gospels are clear that not a bone of Jesus was broken on the cross. So what Jesus didn't go through on the cross is now it's now represented in the breaking of the bread um, that what he didn't suffer on the cross, he now suffers, so to speak, under the appearance of bread when the bread is broken. Um, but the priest also, when he breaks the host, he takes off a small fragment and he drops it into the chalice. And this is the moment that I say kind of symbolically represents the resurrection because we had the separate consecration the bread consecrated separately from the wine, representing the true separation of Christ's blood from his body. And now we have the two species, the host and the, and the, and the, the bread and the wine, the host and the chalice, a reuniting of those. And again, it happens in secret. It happens veiled by the chalice itself. Um, and so that's that reminds us that the resurrection was this hidden mystery Um no humans, apart from Jesus Christ himself, were, were there present at the very moment of the resurrection. It was hidden by the tomb. And even the uh, the chalice uh, often has a covering over it called a pall. And that, that pall, uh, some commentators say it, it's representative of the, the stone rolled in front of the tomb. Um, so again, you just have all, all, of these, all of these meanings and images coming together. Um, as he drops the host in the chalice, uh, he has another prayer said quietly, may this mingling of the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ bring eternal life to us who receive it. And so that's one of the first preparatory prayers for communion that, um, what we receive in the Eucharist really has a salutary benefit for ourselves that it's, it gives us eternal life. Um, the, uh, other commentators say that the mixing then of the body and the blood uh, is a way of expressing the doctrine of concomitance. Um, it's the unity of the sacrament that even though there are two elements or two species, it's really only one sacrament. So when you receive the host, you're receiving the body, blood, soul, and divinity. And if you only receive from the chalice, you are still receiving the body, blood, soul, and divinity. Um the the third uh, the third symbolic meaning of this gesture is um, it expresses the unity of the church. And this goes back to a couple ancient practices that are no longer actually part of the Roman rite, um, but we have we have them attested as early as the fifth century, if not earlier. Um, these two ancient rites called the Sancta and the Fermentum. Um, and these might be so not well known. Um, a couple of parishes ago, I was giving a talk on Eucharistic adoration and I presented my, my, my script to the pastor ahead of time, you know, just so he could read it and give it the okay. And he was like, what's this Sancta and Fermentum stuff that you talk about? Like, can I see some, some resources on that? Because he, he hadn't heard of it. So this is something I found about not through CCD or, or talks that I went to, but from books on my bookcase back there. But so the, the Sancta and the Fermentum. 
are two Roman customs that express the unity of the church in time and in space. So the sancta, and sancta just means holy, um, the priest would reserve a piece of the host from one mass, and at the next mass, that would be the piece that he drops into the chalice. And so it represents the continuity in time of the Eucharist and likewise of the church. Um, the other, the fermentum, and fermentum means leavening, the fermentum rite is the priest at the end of mass would send portions of the consecrated host to other priests in his diocese. And that would be what they put in their chalice when they celebrate mass. So that represents the unity of the Eucharist in space and likewise the unity of the church in space. So you have these two ancient discontinued practices related to the Eucharist being one offering, one sacrifice throughout all time and throughout all space. Um, so those are just some of the things being represented by this easy-to-miss act of a fraction of the host being dropped into the chalice. <laughs> and, and again, like that's not something I necessarily saw as an altar server, because as an altar server at that point in the Mass, I'm not up at the altar anymore. I'm still down in, by my chairs. I'm singing the Lamb of God. Um, it really wasn't until I started reading commentaries and doing the work for these books that I, I came across these things. And they, they really do still amaze and interest me. And I find myself some, I find myself sometimes at mass being like, Oh, I just missed the fraction. Oh, I just missed this. Cause I was singing again. And I'm sure like I have two monitors for my laptop. I'm, I can multitask. I, I got to bring that mentality to mass too and sing while watching what's going on at the altar. That's amazing. Um, so we're almost now at the actual reception of communion. Um, there are a couple more quiet prayers that the priest says as preparation. And then when the Lamb of God has, has finished being sung, the priest addresses the congregation using those words, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold him who takes away the sins of the world. Blessed are those called to the supper of the Lamb. And the... This invitation, first of all, this comes straight out of Scripture. Behold the Lamb of God is something John the Baptist said. Behold him who takes away the sins of the world. These are all coming from the first chapter of John's Gospel. And blessed are those called to the Supper of the Lamb comes out of the book of Revelation. Um, we, we saw in the offertory um, or in the preface, you know, uh, lift up your hearts and the open door in heaven. And Jesus said, if you open the door, I will come into you. I will eat with you and you with me. So we have this continued theme of this heavenly banquet taking place. It's the, the marriage supper of the lamb is actually the full quote from scripture. This is one of those places where I just wonder why they didn't include that one additional word in the liturgy, but it's blessed are those called to the marriage supper of the lamb in the book of revelation. And so these words of the priests, together with our response, Lord, I am not worthy, which I'll get into in a minute, um, they're our final act of preparation before receiving communion. And we first called Christ the Lamb of God in the Gloria. And this title, Lamb of God, is it would have been understood immediately by the people in Jesus' time. When John the Baptist spoke of Jesus as the Lamb of God, they who heard knew what he meant. 
Um, and here I'm going to riff, I know, on like Jeff Cavins and, and Scott Hahn. I'm going to give this brief history of the Lamb of God, which I totally owe to them. Um, the, the title Lamb of God goes back to the time of Abraham, um, the first of the patriarchs of Israel. God tested Abraham. He offered, he asked him to offer his son uh, in place uh, as a sacrifice. When Mo, uh, when Abraham got there, there wasn't a lamb. He was going to sacrifice his son. Angel comes down and stops him and says, you know, I know now how much you love God because you wouldn't have even kept your own beloved son from him. And again, there's crucifixion imagery going on there. But uh, Abraham had told his son, because his son was like, hey, we're going up the mountain and I don't see a lamb in the sacrifice. Abraham says, God will provide himself the lamb. And the mountain ends up being called uh, Yahweh Yirah, which means the Lord will provide. Now, when Abraham didn't have to sacrifice his son, he looked around for something to offer. He didn't find a lamb. He found a ram. And the ram had its head crowned in thorns in a, a, uh, a, thorn, a thorn bush. So again, more crucifixion imagery there. But God didn't provide a lamb yet. The ram wasn't the lamb. And so Israel is going to keep looking for the lamb of God, the lamb that God provides. It wasn't there at Passover because every family had to provide their own lamb. It wasn't there on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, because there were two lambs chosen or two goats. One of them was was uh, set aside to be sacrificed, and the other, uh, the high priest would extend his hands over it and symbolically lay all the sins of Israel on the head of that goat or sheep, uh, goat or or lamb, and send it out into the wilderness to die. Outside the camp, so to speak, again crucifixion imagery. Um, but it wasn't until John the Baptist cried out, Behold the Lamb of God, that the fulfillment of God will provide himself the Lamb was finally made known. So again, the Israelites who heard it, they knew who John was talking about. They knew the significance of that title. And St. Paul uses that title too. He says, Christ, our Paschal Lamb, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. And Peter as well wrote that we have been ransomed with the precious blood of Christ like that of the lamb without blemish or spot, referring to the type of, of lamb that needed to be offered on Passover. And St. John uh, refers to Jesus as the lamb over and over again in the book of Revelation. I've already mentioned he sees the lamb standing as though it had been slain. And so it's this lamb of God, this Jesus who takes away the sins of the world by his self-sacrifice that the priest is showing to us. The old translation is like, this is the Lamb of God, which is just like a statement of fact. The new translation says, behold the Lamb of God. It's, it is a, it's a verb, behold. It is a, uh, uh, it's an imperative. He's, the priest is demanding something of us. Behold the Lamb of God. And so then we respond, Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. Um, and this, like the new translation got a bit of grief when it came out because like, are we talking about the roof of our mouth? Like, you know, whatever. But a lot of that confusion or misunderstanding comes from, again, not realizing the scriptural source of this prayer. We are using almost verbatim the words of the centurion in Matthew chapter eight. Um, he says, 
Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. So the centurion says these words, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, partly because he's not worthy. He, He recognizes in Jesus something far above him. But also, Jesus would have been made ritually impure by entering the domicile of a Gentile. And so perhaps the centurion also wanted to save Jesus that that embarrassment or that difficulty of undergoing ritual impurity. And so he knows that Jesus merely has to say a word and his servant will be healed. And in our case, Jesus only needs to say the word and our soul shall be healed. We shall be, Jesus Christ himself will make us worthy to receive him. And here I think is even the more amazing thing. Jesus, true to centurion's word, did not go under his roof. Jesus healed the centurion's slave at a distance. Jesus does for us what he didn't do for the centurion. Jesus does come under our roof. Jesus enters us. We are temples of the Holy Spirit. And at the beginning of Mass, we asked Jesus to cleanse this temple. And here, right before we receive him once more, uh, we ask that he make us worthy to receive him. And I know in the older form of the Mass, the Confidior is repeated here. Um, again, that, that, last, that last expression of contrition that we might be made worthy to receive the Eucharist. I think if I could interrupt for a second, because <laughs> that's just remarkable to me. What you said there is that he does for us what he didn't do for the centurion. And what a grace that is. Right, because because we could have he could have given us something in the mass that was different than the Eucharist is right. This could have been configured all different ways, but but no, like Christ is choosing to come in into us into our into our temples. Like we can consume him in in the in the Eucharist. Right, that's amazing. <laughs> right, that that's yeah. the, that's the case. Right, he didn't he didn't God, didn't have to. <laughs> yeah, God could have. God could have redeemed us simply by willing it or or saying a word and redemption happens. But instead, he didn't say a word. He sent his word. And he sent his word in in human likeness with a human body. So first of all, that should be a clue to us that Jesus is not afraid to get dirty, you know, to to come into us, into our temples, into our bodies in the Eucharist. Um, And... What, what I get from this is like Jesus is doing something so much more incredible in this mystery of the Eucharist than he did in the miracle of healing the centurion slave yeah. at a distance. Yeah. Um, and it shows that Jesus is happy to not stay at a distance and that Jesus wants us not to stay at a distance from him. That's amazing. <laughs> um, and so then at this point in Mass, we, if, if we're in a state of grace, if we're, if we're ready to receive him, we come up and we receive communion. And one thing I, I realized when I was putting together my books is there are, there's a prayer after the entrance procession, there's a prayer after the offertory procession, and there's a prayer after the communion procession. And it's called the procession. It's not called walking in line. It's not called standing in line to receive communion. It's called a procession. When you are going up to receive communion, 
you're not just standing in line waiting. You are walking in procession. If you pay attention to the opening, to, to the entrance procession at the beginning of Mass, if it's a particularly solemn celebration, you might notice that the procession takes a long time to get up to the altar and there's a lot of people and they get to the altar and they bow and they take their seats and the next people move up and they bow and they take their seats. Processions can be slow, but they are, they're moving like it's ritual movement. So when you go up to receive communion, like don't think of it as like I'm standing waiting my turn. Think of it as this is a procession that I'm taking part in. Um, I've only really participated in a few like outdoor Eucharistic processions in my life. Um, but that kind of gives me the interpretive key for when I'm going up to receive communion, this is really very little different from Eucharistic processions outside. Like the big difference is that instead of just having a benediction at the end, I'm going to actually receive communion. Um, and the very act of receiving communion brings to mind a few interesting things. The first is that um, in Latin, uh, the verbs for to be and to eat, like the infinitive forms of those verbs, are spelled the same. Essay, E-S-S-E, essay. And the verbs are irregular. Like if you've taken any foreign language, you know that the verb for to be is usually a very irregularly conjugated verb. Um, to be and to eat are conjugated irregularly in, in Latin, and they're not always conjugated the same way. Uh, I am is sum, and I eat is edo. So those are very different. However, you are and you eat are spelled the same way when they're conjugated. So the expression you are what you eat in Latin is like es quod es, what you eat, you are, or what you are, you eat. And so like that little bit of linguistic trivia is something I sometimes think about when I'm receiving communion. And I think St. Augustine had it in mind too, because in one of his sermons, he said, if you are the body of Christ and its members, your mystery is placed on the Lord's table. And there St. Augustine is again saying that the bread and wine are symbolic of us as well as of Christ. You receive your mystery to that which you are, or you could translate it as to that which you eat. You answer, amen. And thus answering, you assent. That is, you hear the body of Christ, and you answer, amen. Therefore, be a member of the body of Christ, that the amen may be true. So Augustine, I think, maybe was caught on to that little Latin um, oddity that to be and to eat, you eat and you are, are, are the same. Um, the other thing that really stands out to me about communion is that it's an undoing of the first time that we see food being eaten in the Bible. Um, I know that, I don't know how big it is in Catholic biblical scholarship, but I know that certain areas of Protestant biblical scholarship, uh, they look at things, they, they look at, it's called the law of first mention, which is you look at the first time in the Bible that a word or a concept or an action occurs, and that kind of paints that word or concept or action for all of scripture or maybe up to a certain point when it gets turned on its head and Jesus takes it in another direction. So you think, what is the first time you see 
food being eaten in the Bible. It's the Garden of Eden. It's the apple, or not the apple, it doesn't say the apple in scripture, but we tend to think of it. The fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the language used after Adam and Eve eat from that fruit, the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. That language is used by Luke in the Emmaus account. Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Mm -hmm. Those Greek words there, if you look at the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, it's the same Greek verbs in Genesis chapter 3 as in Luke 24. And so you have this food from a tree that we were told not to eat because we will die. And now we have this new food from the tree of the cross that we are told, take, eat. And if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. So you have this great undoing of Eden in the Holy Eucharist. And I kind of hope that was one of the things that Jesus explained to his disciples, either on the road or, or later when he would appear to them, when he gave those great Bible studies, the very first Bible studies um, in the church were, were given by Jesus himself. That's astonishing to me. <laughs> um, and so you've received the Eucharist. You go back to your pew, you probably kneel and pray for a while. Venerable Fulton Sheen um, had a question that, what do we give back to God once we've received the Eucharist as food? Um, he had this saying that men may hunger for God, but God thirsts for men. And he's referring to Jesus saying, I thirst on the cross in John chapter 19. That if if all we do with the Eucharist is receive it, if in his words, if we just drain the chalice and give nothing to the filling, if we receive the bread without giving wheat to be ground, then he says, and he uses really strong language, he says, if we go to communion to receive divine life, to take it away and leave nothing behind, we would be parasites on the mystical body of Christ. And that's that's harsh, condemning language. Like, if all we do with what God gives us in the Eucharist is receive it, if we don't, if nothing comes out of us from receiving communion, then we are like parasites on Christ's body. Um, and so that brings me to the end of Mass, because we're getting close to where is Pentecost. Like, if, we, if we've gone through Mass and Palm Sunday through Pentecost— is the entrance procession through through where we get to the ending of mass, which is uh, the la- uh, the blessing, the last blessing before mass ends, and the dismissal. And those two items, those two acts, are analogs to something that Jesus did right before he left. He gave a last blessing to his disciples before he ascended into heaven. But he didn't just bless them. He told them to do something. He gave them the Great Commission. So at the end of Luke's gospel, we, we hear this blessing. At the end of Matthew's gospel, we read this commission. And it's these two things, this blessing and this mission, that really point us towards when Pentecost happens. Um, the word dismissal uh, in Latin, in, in Latin, it comes from uh, misa, like the the words of the dismissal in Latin are ite misa est, go, it is the dismissal. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and we kind of get the word mass from Misa. And it sounds a little weird that what we call the mass, like we're naming it after go home, go away, the dismissal. Um, but it's not, you're not being like dismissed, like shoo, get out of here. Misa, misio is mission. Um, and so when we're being dismissed from the church, we're being sent out. Ite, go, go forth. Um, and it's that mission that the whole mass has really been building up to. Um, that there's a, a saying in Latin, uh, nemo dat quod non habit. One cannot give what one does not have. So if we go out into the world, and we're trying to hallow God's name and bring his kingdom about and fulfill his will. And we know that in order to do that, we need to forgive others. How can we be effective messengers of God's forgiveness if we haven't been forgiven? How can we offer the peace of Christ if we're not at peace with him? So the mass, in addition to being the means by which the church worships God, it's also the means by which God equips his church to go out and bring Christ to the world and bring the world to Christ. Like I said, the, the mass is this grand exchange between God and man. God has drawn us to him and we respond by coming to worship him. We bring our sinfulness to him and he gives us back his mercy. We praise him and collect our prayers together and present them to him. And he answers with his word. In the liturgy of the Eucharist, we offer to him bread and wine, which he accepts. And by the power of his Holy Spirit, they become the Eucharist. The priest offers the Eucharist to God, and God returns it to us. With Christ present on the altar, we place before God our troubles, our worries, our anxieties, and he gives us his peace. As we celebrate that peace, we worship the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and God, who once gave his son over to us to be crucified, now gives his son over to us as the bread of life, as our spiritual food. So God is giving us his very self. We are walking, living tabernacles after we receive communion. We respond with our own private Eucharistic prayers, our prayers of thanksgiving. And finally, God gives us his blessing, and we say thank you to him. Thanks be to God once more. And we're able to go out then into the world to bring forth in joy the love of Christ that he wants to be extended to every person. And so we receive so many great graces from God in the Mass, his mercy, his word, his peace, his very self, and his blessing. And it's these graces that sustain us as Christians in our daily lives to carry out the mission of evangelization that the church has promised to fulfill in every age throughout the whole world. And it's these graces that are the core of the gospel message that we're called to preach, which is why God brings us into contact with them at every Mass. And so great a mission requires so great a preparation. And that preparation has to begin with prayer. And there's really no better prayer than the prayer of the Mass. So that when we are dismissed, when we go outside the walls of the church, we who are filled with the Holy Spirit can bring Pentecost every step of the way until we come back the next time to be refueled, forgiven, fueled, charged with that mission again to go out again. And that 
that is why I called the books Praying the Mass, because the Mass really is this great prayer. It's this prayer of preparation for the mission that God has called us to. <laughs> That's fantastic. This is such good stuff. I mean, you could you could listen to this episode a number of times and find new things in what you're saying, I think, just to, to mind this, never mind going deeper in, into the Mass. And, and what an eye-opening experience, I think, to to take these things away and then to go to mass and understand it so much deeper. I mean, that's a, that's an incredible thing uh, I think to be able to do. So, so thank you for, <laughs> for doing that with us. I'm very happy to. And I mean, especially in this, in this climate right now where people might not be able to go physically to church, it might not be as much now as it was in, you know, over the past year. But like, if you haven't been to church in a while physically, and you go in, you might be hit with all these things. Like, don't don't worry if you're hit with so much, so many signs and symbols, and so many things going on that you can't wrap your head around them. Um, take your time with them, chew them slowly, like really enjoy them, savor them, digest them, and just remember that you can go again the very next day, and you can experience and appreciate something entirely new that you you didn't catch the last time you went to mass. Yeah, and, and there is that in, enculturation experience too, right? I mean, you can't, it's very hard, I find it very hard to teach an RCAA course to, to non-Catholics looking in the Catholic faith and to say, oh, here's the mass, here's how it goes, and explain it all to them without actually experiencing it, right? That actual experience of the mass is something you have to do and begin to let that kind of seep into your soul. And coming at it with this kind of information in your hand, even if you just take one of these things with you that you remember from this conversation and go to Mass and, and focus on that one thing that, that next Sunday. I mean, it's a, it's a process of the Mass working on you to make you more like Christ. And, and you get more, I think, each time, and you, you learn what to expect, what's coming next, what what's happening, right? It's not a it's not a read these 10 books in the mass and then go and you know all of it, right? Uh, at once. It's, right. It's, a, it's a process I, of... I tried that. It, it doesn't work. Yeah, yeah, me too. Me too. Me too. That's fantastic. Anything else you want to add to this conversation before we... Uh, it's. I mean, it's been... It's been amazing. It's been a, a sprawling conversation, both both last episode and this one, and I think it gives listeners a lot to chew on. Where do donuts come in and coffee after the mass? Is that going to be part of the? <laughs> um, well, you, you mentioned after mass, and that does remind me. I made that quip about how Jesus told his disciples to stay in the city, not to leave, and I say like, so stay in the church after communion. Don't don't leave right away. Um, you can extend that a little further. Um, between his ascension and Pentecost, there was that that nine days, that, that very first novena. Um, and the disciples, um, for a lot of that time, they were cooped up praying. Um, and so we can kind of take that as a model for what should we do right after Mass ends. Maybe we should take a moment to stay in Jerusalem, in the temple, blessing God. Stay there for a moment um, the priest will still be there waiting to say hello and shake your hand. You know, just take 30 seconds to collect yourself and, and pray and thank God. Um, I say like, thank him for calling you into his family business. And now you're going to go out and work in his vineyard. Um, that, you know, just 
take that one more moment, stay in the temple, thank God, and then, like on Pentecost, how the apostles burst out of that house, and then they were preaching, you know, let that be your Pentecost. You step outside the church, and you are now on fire and ready to to preach and to to live the gospel. Um, and that's why, like, there's, there's multiple dismissal texts. One of them, I think, is um, glorify the Lord by your life. Um, like, those dismissal texts are all meant to remind us what that mission that we're on really is. It's not like, see you next week, don't miss the football game, don't kill each other in the parking lot. You know, there's a much grander mission. Yeah. We're not saying thanks be to God because Mass is over. We're saying thanks be to God because of everything we've done in Mass. And now we can feel equipped and prepared to go out and witness uh, to the rest of the world. That's fantastic. <laughs> All right. Where where can listeners go to get more of this stuff, to follow you? For those of you, for those that hadn't seen the last episode, give us a reminder. I'll, of course, put links in the show notes on and on YouTube as well in the description to, to your stuff. But where can they, where can they go? Uh, so first of all, I am pretty active on Twitter. Uh, I'm at, Jeff Pinion, J-E-F-F-P-I-N-Y-A-N. Uh, I also have a website, catholiccrossreference.com. Uh, it's now actually catholiccrossreference.online. Both sites work, but .online is the, the new one I'm moving to. Um, I have a bunch of tools uh, and a couple of blogs that I don't really update anymore on there, but I have a, a catechism search engine. Uh, I also have a church father's scripture search engine. Um, I'll be putting my books up there too. Uh, for those of you who didn't hear from the last episode, uh, if you are considering entering the Catholic Church or if you are a new Catholic, I will gladly give you free of charge my two books as PDFs. Um, and keeping in the theme of mystagogy, each chapter of the book begins with an Old Testament and a New Testament quote related to the subject matter that shows how the new is the fulfillment of the old, but also how these scriptural concepts are represented in the liturgy. Um, every every prayer or response in the Mass that's in the books has scriptural annotations in the margins so that you can see where from Scripture the Church sources its liturgical texts. And every chapter also ends with questions based on the mystagogical model of interpret explain and relate. Um, so the books are, uh, back when I wrote them, like they were being bought by study groups that wanted to use them to prepare for the mass. They weren't just being bought by individual people. There was even a, uh, a um, not a college, uh, the, the, the Maryvale Institute in Birmingham in England bought a lot of my books and was kind of using them as a textbook, which honestly like shocked and floored me. <laughs> uh, I'm still amazed to this day that, that they did that. It was a great honor. And I got to actually visit them. I took a vacation to England one year uh, and I was able to make a day trip to go down to Birmingham to meet with them. And that was very cool. It was very rewarding. I got to sleep in a saint's bedroom. I got to sleep in the bedroom of uh, John Henry Cardinal Newman. Uh, so that was amazing. That was cool. Um, so yeah, I'm on Twitter, Catholic Crafts Reference. I'm on Twitter at Jeff Pinion. I have a website, catholiccrossreference.online. Um, and yeah, I'm more than happy to have liturgical, mystagogical, scriptural conversations with people. Um, doing these two podcasts with you 
really reinvigorated my interest in in teaching. I, I hadn't been doing stuff like this for quite a while. Um, so it's nice to get back into it and uh, maybe I'll, I'll keep it up for a while again. <laughs> Indeed. And I'm so glad we made this connection. And absolutely, I've been enthralled listening to you teach these last two episodes. It's been it's been really fun. I love this kind of stuff. And I know that this is the kind of stuff that just unlocks the Catholic imagination in our listeners and, and their appreciation of the Mass and the liturgy and, and the faith. And so I, I want to thank you for blessing us with this, for, for teaching us in this way, and for the best offer ever on this show of, of free books. So I'll put links in the show notes for all those things. And, uh, and, and thank you. I want to thank you for being here. And I want to say God bless the, this work you're doing because it's, it's phenomenal. And, and thanks for joining us. Thank you. God bless you. And I hope God continues to bless people through you because this, this podcast of yours, I mean, I, I'm, I'm the least among your guests. Like I, I know by reputation, so many of your guests and, um, they really, you are getting such amazing content from them and it's clear that they are, it's clear that they're on fire for God and they, they love to share and, and, and teach and help you reach as many people as you can. So um, this is a wonderful ministry or apostolate, whatever it is that you call it, it is, it is great. And I'm so glad I stumbled upon it uh, because somebody I followed on Twitter retweeted one of your tweets and uh, that got me to where I am right now. So thank you. Thank you again so much for having me. And yes, may God continue to bless me and you. Well, thank you so much. I call it a dream. It doesn't seem real some days. <laughs> call it a dream. <laughs> Thanks so much, Jeffrey. Talk to you again. Thank you. Well, there you have it, part two of our conversation about the Mass with Jeffrey Pinion. I hope you loved that. I am just am transfixed, just glued to my to my StreamYard feed, watching Jeffrey talk about these things, listening to him, and I could spend hours and hours just listening to him unpack what's happening in the Mass. So hopefully you enjoyed that as much as I enjoyed having that conversation. And again, I'll put links to his book in the show notes. It's a fantastic offer for listeners to the show, a free copy of his book, that's phenomenal. TheCordialCatholic.com is our website for show notes and blog articles and behind-the-scenes things and that kind of stuff, too. We have a newsletter, newsletter.com, newsletter.thecordialcatholic.com to get a weekly newsletter about the show. We're on Instagram and Twitter at CordialCatholic, TheCordialCatholic on Facebook and YouTube.com slash TheCordialCatholic to watch this episode and many others as well. Please do connect with me at cordialcatholic at gmail.com. I love hearing your from you guys. Tell me, what do you think of this episode? Did you like it? Did you, do you want more of this kind of content? What do you think? I love your feedback. It really helps the show to, to keep on going and, and getting better and better. And I am always love hearing from people who are on the journey and helping guys as I can. So please do reach out if you'd like to cordialcatholic at gmail.com. To support this show, head over to patreon.com slash cordialcatholic for a monthly support or paypal.me slash cordialcatholic for a one-time donation. Those help the show to keep going and to keep growing, and your support is crucial in this, this ministry thing here. So thank you. Pray for me, guys. I'm praying for you. Talk to you again next week. Thanks for tuning in. Goodbye, and, and God bless.
This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcathy. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.